There we go. I know, I'm thinking the same thing you guys are thinking. Like, they'll let anyone teach around here. Seriously. <laughs> no, I'm really excited to be with you all and open up the Word of God. And uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit has something powerful to share with all of us. I'd like to welcome everyone from all five of our campuses. We're glad that you were able to join us and say hi to everyone watching us online. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris, and uh, I'm, again, I'm really excited to be up here and share with you all. You know, I, uh, I grew up in church. I've been going to church since the day I was born. My parents always took me faithfully every single week of my life, and um, I had a great childhood. I grew up here in the Bay Area, and, uh, but as I entered into my teenage years, I began to veer off a little bit and go down the wrong path, and I went down a dangerous path. And I was just talking this week with uh, Pastor Steve Ingold, and we were hanging out, and we were talking about our stories, and more specifically comparing our teenage years, because he grew up in church as well, and we talked about this, and he said I could share this, because he shared his story with all of you, and as he entered his teenage years, he went out, he rebelled, and he went off and he started partying and living that lifestyle through his teenage years. Well, I took a more dangerous, dangerous path. I was the good church kid. I knew how to follow all the rules. I memorized all the Bible verses. Um, I was the good church kid. For, on the outward appearances, I had it all together. I knew how to navigate the church system so well. But on the inside, I was legalistic, judgmental, and self-righteous. It wouldn't be a stretch to, to think of myself as the person at church who was the closest to Jesus, maybe except for the pastor. But other than that, I was probably the closest to Jesus. That's how I felt about myself. It reminds me of the, the prodigal son story. You guys know the prodigal, most of you know the prodigal son story. If you haven't read that story, it's a parable Jesus told in Luke 15. I'm not going to get into all of it now. Go read it. It's amazing. It's my favorite story that Jesus tells. But there's the younger son, you know, who takes half the inheritance and he runs off and he goes and blows it and he parties and he lives a life of debauchery, right? That's the Steve Ingold life. <clears throat> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then there's the older son. The older son stays home. He follows all the rules. He does everything as he was supposed to do them. But what's going on inside? There's a heart of bitterness and self-righteousness. So when the younger son realizes the mess he's made and realizes how lost he is, he comes back and asks for the forgiveness of the father, and the father forgives him in his abundant grace. And what does the older son do? He's not happy. He's ticked off because he deserves it all, right? He's the best one. He's the one who's been following all the rules exactly as he was supposed to follow the rules. And it's interesting how Jesus ends that parable. He doesn't fully like put a neat bow on it. And he actually gives us the impression that the older son chose to stay out of the father's good graces. We don't know exactly how it ends, but he leaves us with that impression. And that was me as a teenager. I took the more dangerous path. Just to give you a little bit more insight into who I was as a, as a boy and as a, as a young man, I remember the first time that I cussed. It was a big deal. It was bad, you guys. The word I said was, do you want me to say it? I don't know if I could say it in church. Um, are, there, are there any kids? Are there kids? Kids, earmuffs? All right. I said crap. <laughs> Can you believe it? It was terrible. Like, the wheels of the bus were falling off my life at that point. Like, 
One day you're saying crap, the next day it's crack cocaine. Like, it is a slippery slope, you guys. It is a, you crack that door to sin and it, it'll just bust wide open. At least that's what I was told. I felt so bad. What's funny about that story is, I was at, my friend got a, a bad grade on a test and he was bummed out and he told me about it and I went, oh crap. Like I was actually empathizing with him, so there was nothing sinful about what I said, but in my world, the way I grew up, that word was on the sin list. My mom told me it was on the, that's a bad word that you don't say. It's black and white. It's on the sin list. <laughs> well, uh, by God's grace, I was in a Bible study at 19 years old, and uh, the, the leader of this Bible study, this guy was so, he was so much fun. He had so much life and energy, and he loved Jesus so much, and he was different. And I wanted to be like him, and I told him, I want to be like you. And he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Read the Gospel of John and read it over and over and over again. And we're going to meet every week and we're going to talk about it. And he began this process in me where he began to cleanse me of the legalism and the judgmentalism and the good Phariseeism that I had going on in my life. And I've been on this journey of learning about freedom in Christ and what that means for the last 20 years. And so I'm really at home in this, this series that we've been in, like it's comfortable with me because it feels like the journey that I've been on for quite a while now. And we're going to open up in uh, the book of Galatians, if you want to flip there, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. And actually, we could have used Galatians chapter 5 to teach this entire series because everything we've been talking about up to this point, Paul has been talking about in Galatians 5. Now, let me set the scene of what's going on in, in Galatians at this time. So the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians, which is what we have. He had previously planted these churches in the region of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor back then. And so Paul helped start these churches. Uh, it's a region kind of like the size of the Bay Area-ish. And now he's traveling elsewhere, but he's receiving reports that are concerning to him because of things going on in the churches in Galatia that are not good. Essentially what's happening is there's a group of Jewish Christians, they're called Judaizers, and they're trying to convince all the Christians in Galatia that in order to be a Christian, you first have to follow some of the old covenant laws. Most specifically, you have to be circumcised before you can become a Christian if you're a man. If you're a woman, you either have to have a father who's circumcised or a husband who's circumcised in order to be a Christian. And if that doesn't happen, you cannot be a Christian. They were also trying to implement other old covenant laws that they expected even the Gentile non-Jewish Christians to follow, and Paul was not happy about this at all. Let's start in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery." So oftentimes when Paul um, uses the word freedom in Christ or something similar to that, he's talking about the new covenant. That's one of the ways he describes the new covenant. And when he, calls, when he says slavery, he's often talking about the old covenant. And that's what he's talking about right here. He uses the word, word slavery to describe the old covenant. So why does he do that? Okay, we've covered that in the first four weeks of this series, but essentially I'll review real quick that the old covenant, um, the Mosaic law is a covenant between God and the nation of Israel that was a conditional behavior-based covenant. So basically what it said is, is I am God and if you, be, if you obey me and do what I say, if your behaviors are correct, I'll bless you. If you misbehave, I'll punish you, right? So it was behavior-based 
Um, and that's how things were set up in those days. And what came with that is a set of 600 plus rules that these rules are placed on your shoulder and they're heavy and it requires a lot of work and you're gonna fail every single time. And the rules don't provide a solution to the problem. They actually, they point out the need for a savior but they don't provide a savior. So you're stuck in this situation of carrying all this weight and this burden and these laws and these rules you can't live up to in this performance-based system that Paul refers to as a form of spiritual slavery. He goes on in verse two, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. What he's saying here is if you go back into the old covenant and you try to live under those laws, you try to live under the mindset that that creates, you are not a Christian. Read it right here. You have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. What do you think, what do you think that means? Now, the term fallen away in my day, that was referring to like the Steve Ingolds, Right? They're the ones who had fallen away. They're the ones who are out living the partying life. They had fallen away. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying the people in the church, the rule-following people in the church are the ones who have fallen away. He goes on in verse six. He says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. When Paul says circumcision, he's both talking about circumcision specifically but he's also using it as shorthand to refer to the whole old covenant. He's saying it has no value anymore. He's saying the only thing that counts, look at this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith, love God, expressing itself through love, love others. The only thing, you think we've been harsh on the old covenant in this series? Paul's having none of it. And then he goes on in verse 14, he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. One commandment, the entire law is fulfilled. I thought the entire law was fulfilled in keeping the two commandments of love God and love your neighbor. Now Paul's saying the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. And he's right, because when you love neighbor, you, are, you can't love your neighbor without loving God, so it's already included in there, so you don't need to be redundant. We could actually summarize the entire law in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. This reminds me of what Jesus said um, the night before he was crucified. He said the same thing. The Last Supper uh, in John 13. You don't have to flip there. I'll just go through it real quick, and I'll put it on the screen because we're going to stay in Galatians 5. But John chapter 13, Jesus introduces the, the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant, and right after he introduces the new covenant that he's bringing for all people, for all eternity, any, every covenant always comes with requirements, with commandments, and this one is no different. So here's what Jesus said, verse 34 of John 13. He says, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then 
Peter didn't hear what he was saying. He was distracted by something else Jesus was saying, so he changes the subject. But then the conversation keeps going on, and two chapters later, Jesus is still talking. It's chapter 15 of the book of John, verse 12. Jesus circles back to the point he was making, and he says it again. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then a few verses later, look down in verse 17, he says, this is my command, love each other. He says it three times, the same thing, and he doesn't give us any additional commands. At no point in Jesus' ministry does he give us any additional commands besides this one command, which is the same thing that Paul says, there is one command in the new covenant, love each other, love your neighbor, love your enemy, love your brother. They say it a few different ways. It all means the exact same thing. We have one job. You had one job. That actually, that reminds me now that I just said it that way of Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus is saying, I don't even know you. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And Jesus, as he's, as he's saying that to this person at the end of time, he's, he has this tone of you had one job and you didn't even do it. Hmm. We have one job. Now you may say, but Chris, hang on a second. I, I, I see what you're saying here, but aren't there a lot of additional rules in the New Testament, just like there are in the old? Isn't like, doesn't Paul have these lists of don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that? Yes, he does. That's a fantastic question. He actually does this in Galatians chapter five, the book, we're, the chapter we're studying today. Verse 19 of Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, flee sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, and on, and on, and on, and on. He does this almost in every uh, letter that he writes. He has these lists of do's and don'ts. Are these not more commandments? Like, is this turning into the, the new covenant version of the 613 that now we have all these rules that we have to follow? Absolutely not. These are not new commandments and these are not rules that Paul is giving us. What it is, however, is instruction that Paul is giving us on how to live out the one command that Jesus gave us, right? So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing this lesson to the Galatians, giving them real application and real instruction about how to follow the one commandment, the one job we have. He's saying, here's my, here's my instruction of how to go about doing that. And it's probably going to not look like some of these things. And we would be wise to study this as hard as we can and study our Bibles and learn all of this coaching and instruction that we are given by these men that were inspired by God. But it's not new rules. It's not new commandments. There's only one commandment in the new covenant. I love, to, um, I love to study church history. That's like, it's super boring. I've read some boring books, but I love it. Like for me, it's really fun. Something about church history is just exciting to me. And so I, I'll read all these books starting the very beginning. I love the early church, but all the way through the Middle Ages and the Roman Catholic Church and some of the ways they implemented old covenant rules to control people. It's all fascinating to me. And one of the things I've learned as I've studied it is there's, 
Throughout church history, it always happens. There's this tendency for the church to drift back into old covenant type of behavior-based thinking. It always happens. And then there's a correction. The Holy Spirit moves and brings correction and refocuses us on the one job we have. And there's renewal and there's revival and there's new momentum for the gospel and the movement of the church. And then it happens again. The church drifts back towards this, the safety of this old. And there's a few reasons why. I'm only going to touch on one of them. One reason why we continually drift back into an old covenant mindset is because the leaders of the church or the religious institution, this is one way we're able to gain control over our members, right? When we're able to clarify a black and white rule that you have to follow, right? It feels like we have more control over all these like cats going everywhere, right? We, we said, no, just here's the rule. Everyone has to obey this. And it, it happens over and over again. You see these church like starting to add these lists of rules that you have to follow because it gives us a sense of control. And it gives comfort to people, right, sitting in the seats because everything's simplified for him. You just have to follow the rule, right? You don't actually have to wrestle with the spirit to determine what God is calling you to do. And so there's constant temptation for the church to drift back into old covenant type of behavior based mindsets. But every time the church does this, the momentum of the gospel, the, like the church runs into trouble and it, be, it begins to lose influence in culture. And I, the same has been true throughout American history. The American church has been teaching old covenant mindsets since America, since the Puritans first came. And they were very behavior-based, rule-based, very legalistic. And so it's no wonder we find ourselves in the situation we're in today where this weekend, 97% of the East Bay will not be in church. Why do you think that is? It's not because they have a negative opinion of Jesus. In fact, when, when people who don't go to church are surveyed, they generally have a very positive opinion of Jesus. So why, why don't they want to come here? If you've ever, like, have you ever read, um, like, these forums of people who used to go to church but don't go to church anymore? I have, because I'm, I'm interested in that type of stuff. Like, I want to know what's going on, why. And invariably, like, one after the other, they're referencing some sort of behavior-based, old covenant experience they had in church that they're like, ugh, like, ugh, like, get me as far away from that as possible. The, I, you can't dance church. The women can't wear pants. They have to wear long skirts and long dresses only. Like who grew up in the, like those are real churches that have defined American Christianity. Not every church. There's been great churches, so don't get me wrong. But predominantly that has been the vibe. And here we are. But here's the good news. The Holy Spirit, God is in charge, and the Holy Spirit always has this ability to bring correction and bring a new wave of the Spirit where there's renewal and revival, and he calls us back into faithfulness, back into the one job that we have, the one commandment, and we get rid of all the distractions and all the things that are holding us back and, and causing culture to be like, ugh, stay away from them, and he gets us back into who we were supposed to be, and we see renewal and revival, and we see the church take off. And that's my hope for where we're at today. And that's what I've seen at Cornerstone in the 18 years I've been here, is we are that church. We're the church, and I hear it from new people all the time. There's something different here. 
There's something authentic and real, and I don't have to put on this mask and like hide what I'm struggling with. You guys love me and you accept me, and you're going to speak truth to me, but you're also going to be right there where I'm at. There we go. Amen. But we can be even better at this, you guys. We're not there. It's not like we've arrived. We always keep to have, we have to keep having this conversation and keep reminding ourselves of this and keep growing in this way. So <clears throat> here's what I want to do. We've done a lot of theology and like deep Bible study of old covenant, new covenant throughout the last four and a half weeks. All right. I want to flip it and like, let's make it more practical. Like, what are we, what are we asking you to do based off of everything we've learned over the last four and a half weeks? Well, I, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Um, instead of um, going to the rule book, the legalistic rule book on how you're supposed to behave and live as a Christian when you enter into any situation in life. Instead, we'd like you to ask this question. Any situation you find yourself in life, take a moment, stop, and ask yourself this question. What does love require of me? Hey, isn't that the branding of our series? We're finally talking about it. Week five. What does love require of me? Any situation, any moment of your life, this is an incredible question. It, it, it positions your mind and your heart and your soul to obey the one commandment that Jesus gave us. It eliminates all the excuses, all the loopholes, all the distractions. So I'd like us to practice like real world stuff using this question and just let's get used to using it and see how this works, especially as compared um, to asking what does the rule book require of me? Like those are two different lifestyles. Most of us have grown up in the what does the rule book require of me lifestyle in church. Um, so let, let, me, let me walk through just a couple quick scenarios that are real life that may help us practice asking this question. Let's say um, someone really close to you really hurt you. Like they did something really messed up and it, it like cuts deep emotionally and, you, and you're hurt and you're mad. You cannot believe they did that. You don't even want to talk to them, but then you circle around and you know you need to talk to them and you need to confront them. Let's pause right there and let's ask, what does the rule book require of you? Well, there's all sorts of rule books. There's maybe the rule book that your church had when you grew up or there's the old covenant rule books. Let's just, to simplify this exercise, let's just use the 10 commandments as our rule book, okay? Just play along with me um, to make this more simple. So you go to the rule book. What does the rule book require of me? You think through the Ten Commandments, idols, father and mother, do not, thou shall not murder. That is the rule that applies to like, I'm angry, I'm super angry, and I'm going to go confront one. The, the rule that applies the best is, which is great advice, right? Like, that's a really good rule. We all agree with that rule. Like, we don't want that rule going anywhere. That is a phenomenal rule. But, like, honestly, you're not going to murder them. Like, you're just hurt. You're upset. So what do you do? I don't know. It just says don't murder them. What if you, uh, what if you ask instead, what does love require of me? It's a whole different mindset. It's a whole different lifestyle. Paul, Paul refers to this in Ephesians as the way of love. He says, Christians, live in the way of love. And this question helps you do that. What does love require of me? Okay, no, let's do a different scenario. Okay, you're, um, you go on a business trip, and uh, you are out of town, away from your family. You close this big deal. You're super excited. It's really important for your company. You're, just, you're, you're on cloud nine. 
And uh, you go back to the hotel, it's getting late, you get a bite to eat down in the lobby, and you see an old friend of the opposite gender. You haven't seen this person in 15 years. And you guys used to be super close, and you're like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? You look great, what's going on? Right, and you begin to catch up with this old friend of the opposite gender. You're both out of town, not with your families. And you stop and you say, okay, what does the rule book require of me? And you go back, let's use the Ten Commandments again. You go back to the list of ten. Da, 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 da. Thou shall not commit adultery. That is the one. Which is also, again, like phenomenal advice. Like, it's a great commandment. But you know what the rule book doesn't say? It doesn't say you can't catch up with an old friend, right? Nothing wrong with that. The rule book, I mean, technically, it doesn't say you can't flirt. How far do you want me to go? Like, we could go all the way up into the hotel room with this one, but I don't think we need to. Okay. Instead, let's ask the question, um, what does love require of me? So you just saw your old friend you haven't seen in a while, you're out of town, and you ask, what does love require of me? Okay, but first you have to think about, okay, who are you supposed to be loving? Well, there's the old friend who you need to appropriately love, but then there's your family at home who's the priority, who you need to show love to. And then there's yourself. Like, you can't love others if you don't love yourself. So you should probably make a decision here that is in alignment with what would be most loving to you as well. So you stop and you say, okay, what does love require of me? Well, I'll tell you right now what love requires of you. Like, say, oh, so good to see you. Wrap up your food and say, I got to go call my spouse. And you get the heck out of there. Like, that's what love requires of you. Let's be honest. But it, like, it eliminates the loopholes and, it's, and it focuses your mind and heart to pursue the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, what, what, what are you requiring? What is love requiring of me right now? It's so simple, but it's definitely not easy. It's so simple, but not easy. So there's, the, there's this freedom in Christ that we're going to talk about. There's this lifestyle, this way of love, the simplicity of it also comes with some things that we, especially if you're like me and you're like a recovering legalist that you really struggle with this way of life. Like there's things that drive you nuts that bother you about it. Um, so I just wanna unpack, there, there's two main things. Um, the first one is there's an abundance of freedom in this lifestyle that Jesus gives us because there's only one rule, love your neighbor. And so with that like lack of other rules, there's a lot of freedom. That, that what love requires expresses itself in a multitude of ways depending on the dynamics of each situation that you find yourself in. There's this freedom, and that can be confusing to us legalists at times. Look, look, quick story, um, 15 years ago, I was working for a tech company. I was on a sales team, and one of the guys on the sales team with me, like, I liked this dude. He was awesome. We connected. We had a good relationship. He wasn't a believer. Um, but I just, I liked this guy a lot. And I knew he had some stuff going on in his life. Um, like he told me a little bit, but I, I could just tell he was really going through a hard time. And so I felt the nudge of the spirit saying, like, reach out to this guy. Something's going on here. I also knew that like his lifestyle, his habits, he would, after work, he would go drink basically every day after work. That's just what he did. So I felt like I wanted to connect to him on his level where he was at. And so one day I said, hey, let's go get it. You want to go get a drink after work? And he said, I'd love to. And so we did that. And we spent about two hours together. And the guy poured out his heart to me. Like, he was so vulnerable. He told me everything that was going on. He was crying. 
um, he had this problem, and then that went wrong in his life. And I was able to pray with him, and I shared Jesus with him. And we just had this, like, powerful Holy Spirit moment where I know he was blessed, and I know he felt this, the Spirit. He didn't even know what it was, but I know he felt it, and, and I was blessed as well. And then fast forward two weeks later, um, one of the guys in my community group here at Cornerstone, um, we went and we grabbed a bite to eat. He's a recovering alcoholic. And so what did I not do when we ordered dinner? I didn't order a drink because that's not what love would have required of me in that moment. That wouldn't have been appropriate. I didn't need a, I didn't need a black and white rule. Like in, in Christ, there's this freedom for us to ask this question and, and seek out the Holy Spirit and discern for this unique situation with its own unique dynamics at play, what is the most loving thing for me to do? And it's going to be different than this other situation. So the rules keep changing, which if you're a legalist, that will drive you nuts. The Pharisees hated this because Jesus lived in this freedom. When push came to shove and someone, it required work for someone to be loved on the Sabbath, what was Jesus going to choose to do? He was going to go love that person every single time. Broke some rules along the way. But he had one job. Well, he had more than one job. We have one job. He had to die on the cross and all that, but it was still part of the one job. We often know what love requires, but there's situations where it's more difficult than that. We also, with, with this idea of freedom, there's this other fear that some of us have. And there's this fear of like, man, the freedom is scary because once you start like dabbling in freedom, you're going to start to do things and then the whole slippery slope thing and pretty soon you're just going to be sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning all the time. Like there's this fear we have of freedom especially if you grew up the way I did. Well, Paul addresses this. He talks about it in verse 13 in Galatians 5. On the same page you were already at in Galatians 5, verse 13, Paul says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. Okay, you see, if the freedom that we have in Christ is submitted to the one command that we have of loving others, it will never lead us into sin. It will never, ever lead us into sin. The, the problem is, is when we, when we take that freedom and we make it about something other than loving others, where we start to get in trouble. But that's not the freedom's fault. What we should be afraid of is not the freedom. We should be afraid of not loving others. Because not loving others, that's the guardrails. And as soon as we get rid of those guardrails, that's when we're in trouble. So our fear shouldn't be of freedom. Our sh fear should be of not obeying the one command that Jesus gave us. The other fear we have in regards to freedom is that um, some of us feel like uneasy about this because in our culture, everyone kind of defines love in their own way. Like everything's relativistic. Like everyone gets to say, well, love is this to me and to someone else, love means something different. And so if we're all defining love our own way, eventually it like kind of means nothing, right? And so there's this fear we have about the freedom of everyone being able to do that. Well, you don't have to be afraid of that also because everyone doesn't get to, to define love their own way. Love has already been defined and is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. You don't get to make up what love is. God is love. God has been love since the beginning of time. God will always be love. And that love was expressed in the person 
of Jesus. He showed us exactly what it looks like. And so you don't have to worry about, well, it's going to drift into all these different things. No, it's, it's secure. It's firm. The foundation of love is set for all eternity. It's defined for us. We know what it is. Now, it's going to express itself in all sorts of agile and nimble ways that look different in different scenarios. That's the freedom part of it. But it's tied to this rock that is secure. So you do not have to be afraid of the freedom we have in Christ. Okay, so freedom is one area we struggle with. The second area we struggle with in regards, in regards to this lifestyle, this way of love that Paul talks about, the one-job lifestyle, is that oftentimes, sometimes, we'll enter into a situation where the answer to what does love require of me is not super clear. Like, it's not black and white. We enter into this gray zone. There's issues we face in life in 2020 that the New Testament says nothing about. There's no instruction for us. My mom passed away two years ago. Two weeks ago will have been the two-year anniversary of her death. She lost a battle to cancer. She was 65 years old. And I remember specifically um, one month near the end of her life, um, she was in just severe pain. Like she was in her hospital bed and she, you could just, you could see it. She was groaning and she, the pain was, was intense and it was hard to watch. And she couldn't, she was taking so many opioids that she couldn't, she was knocked out. She couldn't even really communicate with us. Um, it was tough. And we had a friend of the family who gave us some advice and, um, and so we followed his advice. We had nothing to lose. We thought we would try it. And so we took her off most of the opioids, and um, instead we, we decided to um, drop some CBD and THC oils under her tongue, which, if you don't know what that is, that's, that's a form of marijuana. And um, her pain immediately went down. It didn't, go all, it didn't completely go away, but it immediately reduced. And she came to, and she could start to talk to us, and we could begin to have conversations again. And for a couple weeks, um, we had this, this time together as a family with her near the end of her life. And in that moment, I, can't, I couldn't think of anything more loving to do for my mom. Now, this presented a problem to me as a good legalist kid because marijuana is on the sin list. My mom specifically told me, Christopher, don't you ever go near that, right? And here I am, dripping drops of marijuana juice into her mouth. It, it, it presented a conundrum for me, right? I had, to, I had to wrestle with that. But we're shifting our thinking. We're not thinking, is this a sin? Is that a sin? What's a sin? What does the rule book say? We're thinking, what does love require of me in this moment? And sometimes it's gray. Sometimes we don't know the answer. Now, I, I'm not saying like all of a sudden marijuana is fine and you should go recreation. Like don't, like don't take what I'm saying and go too far with it. I, th I think you hear the heart of what I'm saying in regards to the gray. Another issue that's gray in the New Testament, and there's many of them, is generosity. How much of our our wealth, how much of our income, how, many, how much of our assets 
should we be giving away to the church and to the poor? Well, in the old covenant, it was black and white. You, you tithe, it's 10%. And then you give sacrifices that are also specified based on your status in life. You, you give this many, like, I don't know. I don't even know what they all are. But it's all, it's all laid out for you. It's all specified. In the New Testament, it's not. Like, it's really murky what the expectations for us in terms of generosity are. There's three stories. Jesus talked about money a lot. There's three stories that stand out to me in regards to this. One is the rich young ruler, right? Jesus, what did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? He said, give everything. Give 100% away of your, your possessions, your money. Give it all away and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler dropped his head, super disappointed, did not want to do that, and he walked away in discouragement and decided not to follow Jesus. Okay, that's one. There's the other one. There's Zacchaeus, the wee little man up in the tree that Jesus called down. Jesus goes over to his house. In Jesus' presence, Zacchaeus feels convicted of stealing all this money from all these Jewish people. And so he says, I'm giving 50% of it, my wealth, which was significant, a way to pay back these people who I had stolen from. And Jesus says, this day salvation has come upon your household. So one dude had to give 100, another guy had to give 50, and salvation came. Then there's a widow's mite where this woman throws in these couple coins, and Jesus said she was the most generous. Now, we don't know what percentage did she, he said she gave out of her poverty, but we don't know, did she give everything she had or a portion? We have no idea. So is it 100%? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? What is it? What is the expectation on us? Jesus, tell us the rule. We'll do it. There's no rule. What does love require of you? No one else is you. You have a specific calling. Like God has done specific things in your life. He's given you different assets than someone else. Your question is, what does love require of me in regards to generosity? I can't stand up here and tell you what that is. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. The wonderful thing, as difficult as the gray is, the best part of venturing into the gray and wrestling with God is we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. If you're gonna take anything I say today, take this. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit to live this way of love lifestyle. You and your own strength is not good enough. You're gonna fail. You may try to ask this question on occasion, but how are you gonna discern what love actually requires of you if not for the help of the Holy Spirit? And then, in addition to that, how are you going to have the strength to actually do what love requires if not for the help of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit has to remind us to ask the question. It has to help us discern the answer to the question, and then it has to empower us to be able to do the answer to this question, what does love require? It puts us on our knees, crying out to the Lord, seeking his help. You may have a daughter uh, addicted to hardcore drugs who's been in and out of rehab. And you don't know what to do. You don't know how to show love to her. You desperately want to love her. Do you codependently enable her because you want to help? Or do you, do you show tough love and you cut her off and you say you can't come home anymore until you clean things up? One expert says this. Another expert says do this. One month love required this of you. The next month it required something different. Lord, I don't know what to do. Oh, that's right where he wants us, dependent on him to fill us with his strength by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we live this one job, way of love lifestyle. So church, put away the rule book. 
If you live by the rule book, the, the world will have, want nothing to do with Jesus. If you get rid of these distractions and all these things that church people worry about, and you say, let me, let me get rid of those. I have one job. And you remember to ask this question and you depend on the Holy Spirit to help you through. God's gonna do amazing things through you and through us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, please forgive us for the times we lost focus. Our priorities became things that are not of you, things that you didn't ask us to focus on, things that make the world feel like they don't belong here. Lord, focus us on the one command you gave us, the one job we have, which is to love others, Lord. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us. Lord, I pray specifically for the people in any of the auditoriums listening to me and everyone online, anyone who's in a moment in life right now where they do not know what love requires of them, that you would help them discern, that you'd give them people, that you'd give them a community group to come around them and help them discern and help empower them to do what love requires in the situation they're in. It's not easy. It wasn't meant to be easy, but it is simple. So Jesus, we're depending on you to move in our lives in a way that will radically change us and the East Bay around us. We pray this in your powerful name. And everyone said, amen. amen.